Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Sign up today and find out why nothing beats a win at the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app or go to betmgm.com and enter code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-888-532-3500. So what does January 6th have to do with Christian nationalism? Well, a lot. This is episode 101 of Church and Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast where we talk about uh, religion at the intersection of modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. This is the second episode with the new name. I hope you are liking it so far. Well, I'm recording this on uh, Monday evening of um, June 20th, and I believe tomorrow is um, yet another hearing of the uh, public hearing of the January 6th um, committee. And they have actually been quite riveting. Everyone, uh, many people were watching uh, the primetime special that came out about a week and a half ago. But there have been even more revelations in um, subsequent hearings. Um one of the final things that you saw probably on, if you were watching on um, that night, I believe that was June, um, not June 12th, but about a week and a half ago, when that final video was shown was someone in a frame and it looks like they were, one of them was carrying a Trump flag and then there was the Christian flag. Um, the Christian flag is something that I remember as a kid growing up with, you know, you did one of these things where you pledge allegiance to the flag, you pledge allegiance to the Bible, pledge allegiance to the Christian flag. No one thought much of it. Um, that was, of course, back in the 1980s, that was a maybe a, a different America. But in 2022, the merger of the Christian flag and the Trump flag have a lot more ominous signs than they used to. What we're kind of seeing, and we don't always think about it much, is that how much um, January 6th was um, not simply a political event, but also a religious event. And this, in many ways, was what we saw in many ways, the rise or at least the public face of um, Christian nationalism. Um, Christian nationalism is um, 
has been a movement that has come and go gone throughout American history, um, sometimes in, in more benign forms, um, but sometimes in more violent forms. And what we have seen as of late is far more violent um, and, and more dangerous um, than we have in the past. And that has come especially with the rise of Donald Trump. So we're, what does January 6th have to do with Christian nationalism and how big of a movement is Christian nationalism? And how will it affect the nation in the coming years? Well, I wanted to talk to someone about that. And the person I decided to talk to was Jack Jenkins. Uh, Jack is a reporter with Religion News Service. Um, he is also um, the author of the book, American Prophets, The Religious Roots of Progressive Politics and the Ongoing Fight for the Soul of the Country. Uh, before a religion news service, he was the uh, senior religion reporter for Think Progress. His um, articles have appeared in various uh, media outlets, such as the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, Daily Beast, National Catholic Reporter, and many others. And um, his work has been featured um, in the New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, and other news sources. Um, we had a really good discussion about the um, the rise of Christian nationalism. Um, what does this all mean? And um, what does this mean for polit- for the political life of our country, but also even just the social life for our country? So I hope that you will enjoy um, this uh, conversation that I have with Jack Jenkins. Well, Jack, thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me about um, January 6th and Christian nationalism. Thank you so much for having me. So obviously one of the, the, the first night of the, the public hearings, um, they showed that final video and probably the last frame that we see are two flags. One is a, someone carrying a Trump flag and then um, another one carrying a, uh, a Christian flag. And if I remember correctly, you t- kind of brought that up and that kind of symbolized what was happening on that event. Um, where do you think, or how did you see in your reporting where Christian nationalism made itself known on January 6th? Yeah, so, I mean, there was a whole lot of buildup to January 6th, but on the day itself, um, it kind of, from start to finish, really was was a visible element of what transpired on January 6th. Um, the prayer that was offered to kind of open up the, um, the, the event that happened outside the White House, the White House Ellipse, by Paula White, who is a Florida pastor, had been a longtime faith advisor to President Trump, um, and then actually by that point was a White House official. She was in charge of the White House Faith Office at the time. Um, she kind of opened with this prayer that kind of called for justice and, um, and also kind of appealed to Christian national sentiment and kind of 
you know, indirectly or directly, depending on how your interpretation, talked about the election and thinking that, you know, uh, insinuating that it, it, it shouldn't go the way that it had gone, if that makes any sense. But that was kind of a softer version because happening out in the crowd were members of the group America First, which is a, who is led by a person named Nick Fuentes, who um, is widely decried as a white nationalist, but he also often espouses Christian nationalism, particularly a Catholic iteration of that. Members of that group were seen chanting, Christ is King, um, and that they are known for chanting that. Um, and uh, and they have these, a very specific logo that says America First that's on their flags and gear. And I'll come back to them later. Meanwhile, closer down to the Capitol, um, Proud Boys, who you know the the far right um, extremist group, were were kind of meandering about the Capitol, marching around in different ways. And at one point, as they were doing that, they actually knelt in prayer and called on God to you know, have them better represent. Um, you know, their culture, as they called it. And they have prayed previously about a month prior to that, also in D.C. Um, you know, one of the leaders kind of uh, compared their what they called sacrifice as a group to Jesus's crucifixion. Um, also, again, kind of appealing to Christian nationalism as part of their organizing element, which was a relatively new thing. It wasn't necessarily known what they were known for prior, um, prior to that. Um, and then, of course, when the attack on the Capitol began, uh, the, you know, when they first had that, you know, Proud Boys and others broke through that first vanguard of police, um, you know, flags that were in the, um, the crowd included ones that read Proud American Christian with a, um, you know, Jesus fish, as it's often referred to, with the American flag emblazoned on it. Um, you had people blowing shofars, which had become this kind of symbol of the Christian elements of the Stop the Steel movement, which were often called Jericho marches. I can come back to all of that. Um, the, once they stormed onto the Capitol, um, when they were people on the steps on both sides of the Capitol, on the um, west side of the Capitol, actually, there was a, a county commissioner who was also a pastor named Coy Griffin, um, who then led the group in prayer, um, you know, a, a group of people in prayer at that moment. There were people fighting with police behind him, but he was, he was praying um, at that moment, kind of you know, saying, this is what happens um, this is like, you know, trying to insinuating that this wouldn't have occurred if the election results had gone a different way. And then, of course, once people got into the Capitol, we have video of uh, at least one um, person wearing Oath Keepers attire, um, which is this other far right paramilitary group um, huddling with another person in the Capitol Rotunda, you know, thanking God um, for their ability to do this, to, you know, essentially insinuating to stand up for their country. And then, of course, there was when insurrectionists actually got into the Senate chamber, into the heart of it all. And one of the first things that happened after they arrived, by the way, one of the first people in there was a member of America First, um, or at least somebody in their gear. Um, but once they got in there, uh, you know, they started running up to the Senate dais, and one person said, you know, Jesus Christ, we invoke your name, amen. And then um, a person who actually identifies as the QAnon shaman, or at least did at the time, um, said, let's pray together, and then led the group in prayer and thanked God for um, allowing, quote unquote, um, them to be there to, to, to push out what he's referred to as the globalists and the communists and what have you. Um, again, kind of insinuating, and again, invoking Jesus Christ, which is interesting in part because of his co um, complicated religious identity. But for the people in that room who later said that that prayer really uh, mattered to them, that was a very seminal moment. Um, and so, you know, then you, you, if you look through the crowd, we had people who were, as they walked in, into the Capitol doors, saying that they were there in 
the name of Jesus. We had a insurrectionist later um, who she filmed a video of herself in Trump gear recounting how she participated in the attack and saying, you know, inciting as inspiration her faith. And she was particular about this to say that um, she had, uh, that for her, God and country are one and the same. That's her words. Um, and that without our country, we have nothing. And so this was part of what inspired her um, in her actions that day. She's since been tried and convicted for her, um, her activities that day at the Capitol. And so there was just example upon example upon example of this. I'm leaving out all these various symbols and flags that were waved throughout that day. Um, and it was just, you know, really difficult to, um, it, it, the part of the reason I find that, it, that example you listed at the beginning interesting about that last frame of the January 6th committee's video is that it kind of um, proves a point, which someone has brought up to me recently, which is that you actually have to really try to cut a video of January 6th footage without having a religious reference show up, right? They, they were so ubiquitous, it's kind of hard to cut it out. And since then, two of the videos that they have shown in the January 6th um, committee have included religious imagery. One had a um, person, uh, you know, um, wearing a, I um, kneel for the, sorry, I, I stand for the flag and I kneel for the cross shirt. And another was this individual who was, you know, kind of discussing what had drawn him to the Capitol that day as he was in the Capitol. And what was left out of that video is that he is a youth pastor and that he kind of said during that video that he expected to lose his job. And reportedly, that is, in fact, what happened. Um, and so, again, these examples are just constant and it's difficult to ignore the influence um, of uh, Christian nationalism, at least on that group that assaulted the Capitol that day. Now, obviously this was not just something that happened on January 6th, it's been happening beforehand. Do you see any kind of connection between the rise of Donald Trump as a political figure with kind of the, I mean, Christian nationalism, I think probably has been around, but has it, do you, has, is it coinciding with kind of a re resurgence of it? Yes. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, to your point, Christian nationalism isn't new in American history. It's looked different and taken on different um, distinguishing features at different times. There's one argument that kind of what is often referred to as civil religion, this sort of, you know, referencing of scripture and presidential speeches in some regards, um, is like a very low grade version of Christian nationalism that is initially designed to be inclusive as an ecumenical inclusivity, but, you know, but also is seen as exclusive of, of non-Christians. But, you know, you also have examples like the KKK, which is an overtly um, Christian nationalist group that was, you know, fused very intensely with white nationalism. I bring that up because with Trump's 2016 campaign in particular, um, you know, he kind of leaned into Christian nationalism as a way to, to, to talk to a very particular conservative Christian base. And I think it's important to kind of note that for me as a reporter, my operating definition of Christian nationalism is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation and that it should remain as such or that it's deviated from that and needs to return to that status. And I actually think the second part of that sentence is even more important than the first. There's some debate about what it even means to be founded as a Christian nation, even among Christian nationalists, but that call to action about you know, making, making America more Christian as they understand Christianity has become very ascendant through Trump's 2016 campaign and then um, throughout his uh, ensuing tenure in office. Um, I mean, even his inauguration speech had these inflections of Christian nationalism. 
um, you know, one of the more telling moments or one of the more or, or noteworthy moments of his first year in office was around July 4th, there was an event that was held um, and around, you know, around July 4th and uh, Robert Jeffress, who is a Texas pastor, who is a Trump um, faith advisor and an often advocate for Trump, um, loaned out his choir for that event. And they sang a hymn-like ballad, the refrain of which was make America great again, right? Um, while standing in front of, you know, of patriotic imagery. And, and what was curious about the kind of Christian nationalism that had er, emerged under Trump is that it was in many ways tied directly to Trump, right? Like Christian nationalism had a variety of different manifestations in the past and now it was tied to a specific figure. And the fact that, I mean, as many people argue, even evangelical Christians have argued that Trump wasn't necessarily um, in his personal life, his decorum, his behavior, his language, an ideal vision for how Christian, conservative Christians have you know, put forth what a Christian should be. The fact that he was advocating for defending Christianity, you know, he's saying that we should, we're gonna say Merry Christmas again, right? These kind of small things that seem like kind of um, small overtures were, were taken as a, a, a powerful message to this group. And in addition to that, one of the more um, uh, common lines he would use at his events where there was often a big applause line was to say, we don't worship government, we worship God, the we there being the United States of America. And so what we saw was Trump surrounded himself with a very select group of faith, um, primarily evangelical Christian advisors who often espouse Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism became um, even more I mean, even more well represented in uh, um, in among lawmakers and among you know um, Trump's inner circle of officials, and it kind of had achieved a status and clout that it arguably hadn't had at least that iteration of Christian nationalism hadn't had for quite some time, and um, all of that kind of laid the groundwork where. Um, you know, basically the seminal moment, I think, for a lot of people was June 1st, 2020, which was the day that um, the, the, the uh, law enforcement acting on behalf of the federal government forcibly cleared demonstrators from Lafayette Square right outside the White House. And shortly thereafter, Trump walked across Lafayette Square and then held up a Bible in front of St. John's Church, which had endured a small fire the night before. It didn't matter that um, that actually that he wasn't invited there, near as we can tell, and um, and that the bishop who oversees that church, the Episcopal bishop, actually condemned the actions. Told me it left her horrified. It didn't matter that police, in order to, for that to have occurred, that moment to have occurred, actually had to forcibly remove um, clergy who were out there on church grounds on the church patio. Um, distributing water to demonstrators at the time, that there were also clergy among the demonstrators on Lafayette Square. What mattered was the signal that sent to his base, the, the, him as this defender of Christianity, and, and that Christianity was seen to be kind of a central part of being American. Um, and even Mark Meadows, Trump's then um, chief of staff, wrote later in a book that he was never prouder of the president than in that moment. And so all of that kind of led to this, um, was sort of the snowball effect whereby after he lost the election in November of that year, that cadre of supporters, not only the clergy that were connected to him, but a lot of the, the broader corpus of, um, uh, of um, my, primarily white evangelicals, but not exclusively, conservative Christians in general that had come to support Trump suddenly rallied around him and the erroneous claims about the 2020 election and rooted it all in the defense of America. And again, a specific kind of Christian America. So 
why Trump? That's always kind of the big question because here is a guy who what didn't seem very religious, obviously didn't necessarily lead a chaste life of any sort, but yet by many people he is viewed in some ways as this avatar or kind of God's anointed. What made him the one that they chose as opposed to any other, you know, kind of more conservative politician out there? So this has been like one of the big questions that religion reporters, particularly those of us who deal with religion and politics, have been haunted by for a while, right? And so my answer is basically there there were many things happening at once. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them is that um, Trump, you know, very intentionally kind of leaned into Christian nationalism as a concept and, um, or at least, you know, rhetorically speaking and work to kind of recruit a, a, an unusual cadre of faith leaders. And as a small digression, I'll note what was interesting about the faith leaders that Trump surrounded himself with is that only a couple of them were t- members of what would traditionally have been referred to as the religious right. He was pulling from an element of Christianity, particularly the prosperity gospel, um, which has a myriad of different expressions and its most intense form is this idea that if you give money to a pastor, that's an expression of faith that, and then God will reward you with monetary or, you know, health, um, uh, you know, uh, some, something that will, that will make your life better. Um, and those folks had not traditionally been activated in a political sense, but Trump seemed to pull several of them into his inner circle in a way that was unusual. And so he had a cadre of very vocal faith leaders who would speak about um, on behalf of Matt events. And again, you know, Russell Moore, who was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's political arm at the time, um, who traditionally would have been considered a member of the religious right under that monarch, that definition, um, was one of Trump's biggest crit- critics during that time. But it, Trump still had enough faith leaders to kind of put the facade, if um, on top of him, um, on top of his events, that you know I am endorsed by faith leaders early on. Um, but as the primary progressed, he did in fact start getting more and more support from religious leaders. Another thing that was happening here was that there was this sort of the the group of theologies that started getting discussed in conservative Christian circles as Trump started winning states during the Republican primary. And one of them was this idea that Trump is the Cyrus president, that the fact that he was seen as less moral than, um, you know, to be quite frank, a Mike Pence-ish figure, right, a more traditional conservative Christian figure, um, was actually a sign of his anointing that God can use imperfect vessels. And so Trump was just, you know, um, part of that element. Thirdly, he, uh, you know, another thing that was happening was Trump was very clear. He wanted to support um, these concepts of, uh, he wanted to, you know, establish conservative judges on the federal bench and then justices on the Supreme Court, which was a key and core um, concern of conservative Christians. And, and as well as he appealed to a few different niche issues within that community, such as saying he wanted to at least chip away at, if not eradicate, the Johnson Amendment, the portion of the U.S. tax code that prohibits nonprofits in general and also faith communities from explicitly endorsing candidates. Um, and so the, all, he said all of these things in public. And so that kind of helped lend credence to him as this at least defender of the issues that these folks, that many of these folks held dear, many of these conservative Christians held dear. And so as he became more and more successful, he started rallying, they started rallying behind him. But there were two other things I think are also important. One is um, there was a really 
significant moment where Trump's presidency kind of went from something that while many in, um, folks in various circles were seeing, uh, were offended by because of his rhetoric, particularly around immigrants and other folks, um, suddenly took a turn for a more serious note and in the tail end of 2015 in the aftermath of the uh, Paris attacks, um, the Paris terrorist attacks at that time, there was a wave of um, anti-refugee incident here in the United States and abroad actually, um, uh, concerning particularly the idea that, that Muslim refugees would come and you know the, 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 the erroneous theory was that they would come and commit terrorism. And Trump responded to that, not by using dog whistles or talking around the event, by, but saying, you know, proposing a full ban on Muslims entering the United States. And um, that differentiated him from the rest of the Republican field, because others like um, Ted Cruz might kind of say, you know, we should talk about Christian refugees or something like that. Um, Trump was just pushing this for this full ban. And that seemed to appeal to this sort of different, distinct religious ideal where, you know, this defense of Christianity could be seen as someone uh, invested in someone who is maybe not the perfect Christian, but will defend us ruthlessly. And, um, and never mind that, you know, a lot of that, uh, those claims about refugees were erroneous to begin with, but it was seen as this sort of defense of faith. And the final point here is that Christian nationalism is a series of theologies. There's honestly Christian nationalism, there's a myriad of different expressions here. Um, but it is often politically speaking, but probably best understood as an identity, a way of people seeing themselves and what it means to be an American and in the world. And so Trump was able to kind of coalesce not only, um, you know, some more church-going Christians and, and particularly white Christians, but also the this ability to kind of appeal to folks who might have a cross on their wall and a Bible in the corner next to American flag, but might not go to church that often, but the identity is still there. They would ID as an evangelical, for instance, or a conservative Christian on a, um, a poll. And I'll close by saying this, which is that part of how I kind of coalesce all those things together is there was this one um, poll that was conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute at the time. And I'm gonna get the details, um, uh, I'm gonna fudge the details a little bit so somebody can look it up and fact check me. But a few years before the 2016 election, they conducted a poll and they asked white evangelicals in particular, what um, do you think that um, morality and credibility and behavior is important to you in a candidate? And roughly around 70 to 75% said yes. They conducted the same poll around the time Trump started running for president and the entire statistic flipped where suddenly only around a quarter, a little bit more than that, um, uh, we're, we're willing to say the same thing. That's a huge shift to occur in a short period of time. And it seems to indicate the kind of appeal that Trump um, had and Trumpism had to this constituency to the point where it was able to kind of um, push even what they profess to be important in politics into a different direction. So I know that's like a series of different things that don't necessarily always knit perfectly together, but I think that combination um, was enough to kind of explain the kind of Christian nationalism that 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 swelled under Trump's campaign and then um, tenure in office. Yeah, I think one of the things that was fascinating early on um, when Trump ran in 2016, and I think they did some surveys that a lot of the people who were initially interested in him didn't go to church. Um, and I think that you still see that making up a significant part of his appeal are people who I think have the identity of a Christian in some ways, as, as you said, 
but they don't necessarily have the, the background um, or maybe they go once a year, if at all, but it's the identity that seems to matter more than the belief. Mm -hmm. and, and increasingly, we're starting to see um, an interesting element where folks might be attached to you know, forms, of, particularly, this is, it's not exclusively this, but forms of charismatic or Pentecostal Christianity that actually don't have a singular worshiping house worship, but mm -hmm. might meet once or twice a year, three or four times a year in these conferences, and otherwise they're online. Um, the kind of politicization of charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity under Trump was also a notable shift. Um, and the appeal to prophecy that that group um, has is actually, uh, um, Adam Kinzinger, who's on the January 6th committee, um, told Russell Moore in a podcast this year that he didn't think that January 6th would have happened the way it did had it not been for what he called the errant prophecies declaring Trump as the ordained president of the United States. And so I think that's, that's, I think that's only one element of actually what you're talking about. But I, I single it out to say like, those folks might even be relatively new to Christianity, but it's happening to them, or at least um, uh, regular attendance. But for them, regular attendance was, was mostly a conversation on Facebook followed by a few conferences, as opposed to every Sunday, also a church potluck on Tuesday, you know, a, a, a specific breakaway group on Thursday, that sort of thing. So religion in some ways has always had a role or a part of kind of American political life, whether we're talking about abolition or civil rights, um, even the pro-life movement. But this seems different from those movements, whereas this was kind of in part of the movement, but it it seems that this Christian nationalism has a very different tinge to it. How would you explain that difference? Right, and I, and I should acknowledge up front that it's even shifted since January 6th. Um, so one thing we've seen since January 6th is that Christian nationalism has actually started to spread, particularly in extremist circles and right, far right circles in a way that wasn't true necessarily before. My understanding, as extremism experts have told me, is that you know right-wing extremism is kind of a perpetual history of people yelling at each other and not uniting, um, and then uh, uh, under moments of coalescence and then a lot of fracturing over and over and over again. Um, but what was what's peculiar around Trump is that one, for a variety of different reasons, irrespective of religion, they started coalescing in different moments. Um, the incident in Charlottesville, being the tragic events there, being one example, but. Since then, and particularly since um, January 6th, um, we've not only seen you know, uh, these groups more fervently lean into Christian nationalism, they started identifying as Christian nationalists, um, like claiming that as a moniker that they're proud of. And that's relatively new. The term was more used as a descriptor as opposed to necessarily a self-ID, and that seems to be changing in these extremist circles. And what I think is important to understand about Christian nationalism is that it's a lot of different things at once. There are Catholic iterations of this. There are evangelical, you know, more traditional evangelical iterations of this, Pentecostal and charismatic iterations of this. For me, I go back to that prayer in the Senate um, dais, which was led by, um, you know, this person who, um, Jacob Chansley, the, you know, the quote unquote QAnon shaman, who was deeply syncretic in his religious beliefs. He also believed he transcended dimensions, believed a lot of things that would not have sat well with traditional Christian theologians. But when he prayed before that group, he was appealing to a specific form of Christian nationalism and invoking Jesus Christ. And people who were in that room, at least two of whom um, you know, spoke about that later. One was from Alabama and said he, had, he, he prayed the whole way up 
to January 6th because he wanted to plead the blood of Jesus on the Capitol, as he described it. And another evangelical from the Midwest, who is more of a traditional um, rank-and-file evangelical, both said that that was an important moment for them, despite the fact that they actually all come from traditions that may um, conflict with each other in a myriad of ways. And so that's a roundabout way of getting to, I think, your question, which is that I think what's interesting about Christian nationalism in this era is that it's been become broad enough to coalesce a bunch of different groups that may not have agreed with each other in past eras. And two, um, it's taken on a very defiant edge. It's, a, it's an us, there is a group of, um, the, the premise of Christian nationalism is that there is a group of us that are Christian and the rest of um, the country that is not. That doesn't make sense sociologically. You know, the, the idea is that some of the deepest critics of Christian nationalism are clergy from various traditions. Um, in fact, you know, one of the only in-person counter-protests in Washington, D.C. on January 6th was a group of clergy praying around a Black Lives Matter sign. Um, part of the reason there, was, there weren't a lot of in-person events is because the mayor and activists had dis discouraged people from doing it, but those clergy still felt it important to be there, and they have since members of that group have decried Christian nationalism specifically. But this group still has made an image of what it means to be a Christian in the United States, which again is more of an identity than a uniform, fully agreed upon theology. And, it's, and it wants that to, have a, a, to achieve power over and against another subset of the population. Again, this has happened before. The KKK is an extremist example where, that had an ideology where they wanted to you know, lord that over other people. And there have been other expressions in the past. But for it to be attached to a specific political figure, for it to have animated so many disparate groups um, in a way that wasn't always true, and for in some ways to redefine what those groups had held dear even four or five years earlier, um, you know, that is a different shift and a more rapid shift than we've seen in the past. Some people credit that to the, the, the preponderance of social media and how that can like, you know, coalesce ideas pretty quickly. Some, some credit the influence of the QAnon conspiracy theory movement that can, is now infused with Christian nationalism. It's easy for these things to kind of glob together. Um, but I think those are some of the distinctive features compared to past iterations, at least in the United States, um, in terms of what makes this, the, the tenor of this look different than past expressions of religion and politics. Where do you see the Christian nationalism going from this point? Um, you know, we have uh, elections coming up in the fall. Obviously, we have 2024 not too far away. Do you see Christian nationalists having a role in, in the upcoming elections? So short answer, yes. Um, the, I mean, if anything, their role is more uh, obvious than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, just in the last few weeks, uh, you know, self-identified or defended Christian nationalism by name, saying that it was a good thing, right? And um, we've had group, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in particular, as well as um, Paul Gozar, another elected official, have um, ties or at least connections with America First, that group I mentioned at the outset. Both Paul um, Gozar and Marjorie Taylor Greene spoke at America First's um, gathering earlier this year. Um, and I think that that boldness with being, with claiming that as an identifier and claiming it as a aspect of um, their political identity 
is going to increase. Now, some of these people have lost, right? There was a, the um, there was a law, uh, there was a, an attempt, I believe, in Georgia by somebody claiming a um, what was it? Guns, Jesus, and babies was the main um, campaign slogan. Um, that 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 was an unsuccessful bid. And there's some you know theory that like the that the, they might this might be the Republican Party overextending in certain places where if these people identify as Republicans but run on these um, Christian nationalist platforms that that might cost them in the general election. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but I don't see it going away as an animating factor because while all of that is occurring, we also know, and you know, we just had these events that transpired in Idaho this past weekend where um, uh, far right groups were encouraged to um, uh, kind of descend on this one city in Idaho and um, counter protest and LGBTQ pride event. Um, and a whole group of one white nationalist group, Patriot Front, were arrested in mass. Um, and I should note, at least one, one or two of those members have ties to a church in Washington, which is a whole nother conversation. But Idaho has been discussed by um, uh, some reporters and has, this has been reported on as this new target for far right politicians and political figures um, to try to win very local elections in those areas. And, um, and, and, and we're also seeing in those instances, Christian nationalism fuse with white nationalism pretty explicitly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so that's another element here. And then the third piece I think is important to note is what was interesting about Christian nationalism post January 6th, when Trump was you know, booted off major social media platforms and um, his ubiquity on the internet became less, right? Um, there was this kind of Christian nationalism had their own communities, their own movements that kind of started moving independent of Trump's direction, or at least as a conversation partner. And um, they were often talking about Trump, but one of the big causes became um, opposition to COVID-19 vaccines. And there were major events held that were deeply Christian nationalist by by nature, with Christian nationalist imagery, with crosses over American flags, what have you deeply spiritual language, all rooted in this opposition to the vaccine. Um, Opposition to masks, particularly in schools, became a similar thing. And if you watched a lot of those school board meetings where parents would come in or people, activists, irrespective of whether they were parents, would show up and kind of shout at school board members and tell them not to have um, mask mandates or vaccine mandates for their kids, um, there was often an invocation of faith somewhere wrapped up in there. And so we know that some of those people are running for local elected office now as, a, as an attempt to um, kind of uh, retake those spaces for um, what they see to be uh, uh, Christian Americans. Um, and I just think that boldness isn't going away. And we also know that some of the extremist groups have had their um, chapters increase. Whether that means that those people would run for office is a different question, but they certainly seem to be a loud and enthusiastic group. And one thing about midterm elections and primary elections are like this too, is that it usually just falls to whose supporters are more enthusiastic. It's about turnout. And so if Christian nationalism once again proves to be a, a powerful way of, of, um, of getting voters to the polls as, was, as, as Trump leaned into successfully in 2016 and not as successfully in 2020, if it again proves to be a powerful um, movement, particularly in local elections, I think we could see more people who either self-identify as Christian nationalists or invoke Christian nationalism or espouse versions of it being elected to public office. Um, I don't know if you've read the article in The Atlantic by Tim Alberta 
about evangelicalism. Um, he himself comes from an evangelical background and he talks about um, a church that he visited in his home state of Michigan. Um, and it's a, a church that has grown by leaps and bounds, especially during the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that I remember is that he enter, you enter the church and he talks about the fact that there are flags, American flags aplenty everywhere, but there, there are no religious symbols anywhere. Um, and which made for a very unique worship experience. Um, and so how, I guess my question is, how is Christian nationalism affecting um, American evangelicalism? Um, because we know that those two aren't equal, um, but Christian nationalism is seems to be made up of a lot of people who were, you would consider at least at some point evangelicals. So how is it affecting it? Um, and how is it, how are people within that tradition kind of combating it? Yeah, this is a fascinating question. Um, Christian nationalism is affecting multiple traditions, Catholicism, you know, smaller traditions, what have you, but evangelicalism is kind of its, its core base as it were. And there's a scholar named Ruth Bronstein who wrote a really fascinating paper that I reported on recently that argues what's interesting about the current makeup of um, that includes what we might describe as Christian nationalism and Christian nationalists. Um, you know that the American religious landscape has in many ways been reacting to the rise of what we then called the religious right in the 1990s for the past few decades. There are a myriad of different effects of that, and one of them is that it caused more visibility to the, what was for lack of a better term, the religious left, um, and sort of a, a, an asp aspirational counterbalance to the religious right. Um, it caused, it, it's, there's some evidence um, to argue that it, it spurred some of the disaffiliation among more liberal communities um, it, because they didn't want to be associated with religion at all if they had a tenuous relationship to begin with, and they saw it as um, you know, more tied to the religious right, they would just cut ties altogether. Um, but another important element, um, she argues, is that it led to this feedback loop in conservative Christianity, where the, the attempts to further purify that community technically shrunk that community, that activist community over time in terms of who was doing the most fervent activism, right? But what happened, and so there would be people where, okay, if they were um, you know, for issues around same-sex marriage and abortion. If there was any equivocation around those issues during the 2000s and leading up until now, they might be um, cleaved from the, from the herd of evangelicalism, either culturally or in denominational senses, literally kicking out churches that would um, you know, affirm LGBTQ identities or relationships. Um, and that winnowed this community. And there's concern that it actually means that they are in more conversation with extremist voices without some of the more moderating voices. The classic example being Russell Moore, who you know, came out strongly against Trump in 2016. He held this position in the Southern Baptist Convention for many years. And, and you know, other, he and others argued there were a myriad of different reasons why he left that post later. Um, but the reality is that Russell Moore no longer worships at a Southern Baptist church anymore. And so that, that's another example of like this pushing in a different direction. So I, I say all that because evangelicalism has been left in a very interesting state where we now actually have a crop of churches that self-identify as patriot churches, right? Like that wasn't true 10 years ago in the same way um, where they're, you know, they identify that way. You know, we have 
footage of their services that you know they're they're primarily talking about the election they're talking about trump and um and where that political ideology and political arguments are, are a key component of their religious practice. Um, it has also led to infighting within um, evangelical communities where, you know, we've seen um, some folks who might, you know, kind of espouse versions of Christian nationalism in political contexts suddenly involve themselves in denominational um, fights. You know, just recently we had the election of a new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, some of the more, uh, you know, conservative or, or, or right-wing, depending on your definition, candidates did not win, but the debate involved voices like Charlie Kirk um, of TPUSA, which is, who has espoused versions of Christian nationalism, previously worked at a, a think tank that was set up at Liberty University, um, that at the time was run by Jerry Falwell Jr., who was a close confidant of Trump and was a deep um, supporter of him. And you know Charlie Kirk was was you know in a part of the conversation when they were discussing who and, that, and he wasn't running, but it went part of the conversation about what should be valued and the head of a Southern Baptist Convention president. And I think um, those debates are are increasing, where we do have pastors who talk to us, um, reporters, and particularly many of my colleagues who specifically do evangelicalism, both at Religion News Service and in other publications as well, who say that this is a real difficulty because even if they personally disagree with aspects of Christian nationalism or things that are attached to it, like conspiracy theories, um, if they preach a sermon on that on Sunday, you know, they're, um, they, they have, they have, you know, they have people who leave their churches, they have people who push back on them, they get backlash, or even if that's not the case, they don't find a whole lot of convincing that occurred during, after that sermon, because they get their congregation on Sunday and their congregation is on Facebook or other social media platforms where they get a very different um, theological vision, you know, Monday through Saturday. And the preponderance of, um, of figures such as Greg Locke, a controversial Tennessee pastor who um, on January 5th, the night before January 6th, was in DC praying for the Proud Boys um, and, and lauding them. Uh, he's um, uh, gained a lot of popularity for his online sermons when he's very bombastic about both Christian nationalism um, um, in terms of, you know, uh, saying that America is a Christian nation, when, you know, that sort of thing, but also some conspiracy theories, support for Trump, uh, arguing that that the, the, um, the, the Delta variant of COVID-19 didn't even exist. Um, but his, his online sermons are shared widely and his comments are shared widely. And that might be what an average parishioner gets throughout the week and a pastor only gets them on Sunday. And so um, I think that those dynamics are becoming really increasingly difficult for pastors to, to, to grapple with because um, you know there's the question of whether or not a pastor should care, a theological question about whether or not their, their congregations will, will um, value what they say. But we certainly have heard for you know, a while now that many within evangelicalism um, struggle with how best to tackle these issues or to tack, whether to tackle them at all, um, particularly when they're, they're, uh, they're attached to a myriad of issues that have become um, mainstay conversations within uh, conservative Christian circles, such as opposition to critical race theory, however defined, um, often inaccurately, opposition to vaccines 
and um, increasingly uh, a resurgence in opposition to LGBTQ identities and relationships. And so um, that's, a, that's a roundabout way of saying it has deeply impacted evangelical Christianity. And um, the, you know, I would agree with many other writers who've done more research on this to say that the end result of that remains unclear. Mm. And it is not immediately apparent whether that will lead to more schisms or fissures within um, evangelicalism, or if it will lead to a broad embrace of Christian nationalism or similar ideologies and identities within those communities. One of the things that, I mean, and you brought up about um, sexual orientation, um, LGBT issues, is kind of in the wake of the um, passage or, or um, of um, Obergefell Hodges and um, same-sex marriage, it looked like that the animosity on that issue was on the wane. Um, and even early on in um, Trump's campaign, he didn't seem to initially seem like that was a, at least on, on gay marriage or things like that was a big issue. But as you've said, we've seen a resurgence of um, kind of anti-LGBT um, movements and everything in the last few years. Is there a connection between that and um, Christian nationalism? So, I mean, there, uh, so yes, um, I think, I think it's my argument, this is require more reporting, but what I have seen, so what I can say factually is that some of the extremist groups that are start, that are leading that charge, and this is particularly around transgender identities, um, which is kind of, but that is, can, but continues to balloon past that. Um, many of the folks who have been involved in kind of pushing that um, as a narrative have come from these far-right extremist groups that have also embraced Christian nationalism. In fact, some of the stuff that went down in Texas recently, um, reportedly among those who were there harassing um, people, LGBTQ people at the time, they would identify as Christian fascists, which is a very specific identifier. Wow. Um, and so I, I bring that up to say that the, uh, I mean, opposition to LGBTQ identities and relationships has often come from religious groups. And in the last couple of decades, it has actually been many religious groups have been some of the greatest defenders as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, um, which, is, which is complicating this narrative. And I'm curious about how this ends because um, you know, there are a myriad of people for, who are LGBTQ who are ordained clergy. And um, I recall people talking about who were, who were uh, clergy who went to Charlottesville, who are LGBTQ or just generally progressive in their um, identities that that people there would yell at them and say you're not a pastor like these are these overt white supremacists that were there in Charlottesville would say you don't you're not really a pastor, and um, that degradation um, and uh, demonization of that entire religious tra um, tradition as well as just LGBTQ people in general does seem to um, often circle back to a religious conversation and a Christian nationalist conversation. To your point, this wasn't necessarily a singular element of Trumpism when Trump was in office. It's an interesting thing that, I mean, I think a lot of LGBTQ advocates would not count Donald Trump as an ally um, and say that, you know, there was a lot of reasons that they were, um, that, that what he did in office were things that set back 
um, LGBTQ rights movements. But the concentrated harassment that we are seeing in these right-wing groups um, is, is uh, relatively new and what I'm hearing from LGBTQ advocates, pretty scary. Um, the kind of stuff that we just saw in Idaho. Yeah. I should note that in addition to the Patriot Front group that showed up, groups like America First were encouraging people to go for a rosary walk. Another more overt Christian nationalist, Matt Shea, who for the record, members of Patriot Front at least attended his church once within the last few months, and it appears that they are the sons of his men's minister, or at least his former men's minister. He's an overt um, Christian nationalist, and um, in terms of espousing that he wants a theocracy, and um, and so, you know, and he was also leading a prayer walk in Idaho that day, um, again, to, to counter-protest this LGBTQ pride event. So, um, I think uh, hatred towards LGBTQ identities can come from a myriad of places, but I do think Christian nationalism, in part because it has become more resurgent in far right and extremist circles, is very much a part of that new resurgence. Um, one of the things that we are also seeing coming um, are kind of the rise of, I guess, the best way to describe it is Christian nationalists running for office. Um, Probably the most visible one is uh, Doug Mastriano, who is uh, who won the GOP primary in Pennsylvania. Um, has been very open about um, kind of the January six and the election being stolen and and what plans he has for twenty twenty four if he wins. Um, is this becoming a trend? Are we starting to see? kind of Christian nationalist candidates um, that are, are going to be, are, are currently running for office or are planning to run for office in the next few years? So yes, um, I, the, my reporter colleagues in the field, Sarah Posner and Eliza Griswold covered Doug in particular pretty well and called this early as this could a potential trajectory for um, these folks. I mean, Doug, was at, there on January 6th, uh, Doug Mastriano. He claims that he left when, after things turned violent. Um, he also reportedly, you know, funded some of the buses for people to be there to begin with. Um, but the, you know, I think there is an argument that these groups feel empowered and these individuals feel empowered. Um, or the, you know, a key part of Christian nationalism of its modern iteration is this concept of, of besiegement that they that people are that people who are true Christians, um, true American Christians are under siege, and so it is incumbent upon them to reclaim the country um, from you know the powers that be, um, whoever that is, and uh, and so as that narrative has become louder and louder, and in part because we have because Donald Trump lost and because Joe Biden is president. Um, the, the, you know, those folks are, are, are very active um, in politics. I, I will defer you to a Pew survey recently. Pew did a really fascinating thing where they cut up the country into around 10 different um, ideological groups. Mm -hmm. And each one of them only took up nine to 10% of the, of the US population because they, they cut them up that way. The, the furthest right um, was a group they referred to as faith and flag conservatives, which Pew researchers later said this was their attempt to assess what um, is otherwise described as Christian nationalism, right? And they only made up, you know, nine or 10% of the country. 
Well, they made up around 22 to 20 to, uh, you know, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the GOP, full stop. Um, and and they were the one they were tied for one of the largest groups as a part of the GOP. And again, this isn't necessarily the number of people for whom Christian nationalism is a powerful motivator. These are just kind of the, the hardest of the hardcore, as it were. Um, and when they set all these different religious groups out and pulled them on their political activity, um, the Christian the faith and flag conservatives consistently were some of, if not the most politically active subgroup. And that includes whether they talk about politics at home whether they have attended a, um, uh, an event or a rally in recent days, you know, whether, they whether they plan to vote. So this subgroup was deeply um, more, was significantly more politically active than anyone else other than progressives, which actually made up a, what they described as progressives, which actually is a smaller percentage of the US population and not always. Sometimes the progressives weren't politically active and sometimes they weren't. So what I say, I say all that because that means that this group is deeply politically active in a way that other members of even the Republican Party aren't necessarily. And um, that means that their supporters are also um, are arguably more, the potential for more political activity than others. And that means, again, when we're talking about a midterm election, if you're doing the math and you, you, know, you pull out on this sort of stuff, I, I, I could see it, um, see it coming back that maybe this is a, um, a successful campaign strategy if you need to get people to turn out to the polls that leaning into this ideology, if you did not already, um, would be uh, could do, has the potential to be a successful political um, uh, rhetoric moving forward. So um, I think the, the the data is there to, to suggest that um, at least candidates running for office doesn't is unlikely to let up soon. If not, if, if anything, it seems to be increasing. The question becomes if they win, right? And I think that that would be an interesting scenarios if, let's say, that they that Christian nationalists lost heavily um, in everything from federal offices to, you know, um, county commissioner across the board, you know, um, come November, then I think the Republican Party might re you know, rethink whether or not that was a, a valuable strategy, it, it, assuming that there's in any sort of top-down strategy here. It looks like, you know, people don't necessarily have to be um, speaking with the head of the RNC um, every day to be running um, under a Christian nationalist ticket for a low-level office. Um, but I think that, yes, that is obviously a trend that we're seeing. And, um, and I think I would be shocked if it, um, if it led up between now and November. Hmm. So where do you see or how do you see Christian nationalism threatening American democracy or destabilizing American democracy? Um, you know, we talked a lot about how the event itself on January 6th, um, how it could have gone a very different way and, and caused a lot of, of damage. Um, but obviously this movement is still here. What is the, what would you say it, well, I guess to ask, is there an ongoing threat and to American institutions? And if so, what does that look like? So um, a couple of, a few different researchers, um, Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead, Phil Gorski, and others have kind of consistently polled on these communities. On, they use a specific rubric to kind of, you know, define how Christian nationalist somebody is. Um, and in their polling, they have found that of those who score high on the Christian nationalism index, as it were, 
um, tend to also support, uh, you know, one, you know, support the idea that the 2020 election was rigged, um, but also uh, don't necessarily support, you know, um, efforts to expand or um, cement voting rights, right? And so it's a raw practical, you know, element of, of access to the ballot box. There is concern among those scholars as to whether or not this ideology could um, stymie efforts um, by any number of advocates who, for the record, are often faith-led. Um, those who are um, advocating for voting rights are often themselves led primarily, they're one of the, the chief leaders of that movement are clergy. Um, but that, that they would butt up against this community for a variety of reasons. You know, the, I, I should know, you know, those who were there on January 6th, they're of the persuasion that they were defending democracy, right? That they think that they were, um, that the, if, if, if you believe the erroneous claims that the 2020 election was, um, was riddled with widespread fraud, which is not true, um, then they are under the position that they um, should absolutely uh, defend it. Mm -hmm. The problem as a journalist is that the evidence isn't there to support that claim. Um, and as, as, a, as a byproduct of that, you know, as a practical matter for democracy, if the elections are not deemed legitimate, um, that is destabilizing <laughs> for democracy. That is the way that we transfer and accrue and, and, and um, accrue power in this country is through elections. And if there a large portion of the country is convinced that those elections are not legitimate at all, um, then that will have um, a, you know, a, a likely destabilizing effect in, um, on the body politic. Now, I should know, you know, some of these, Doug Mastriano was, argued, you know, was there on January 6th. Um, and again, he says he left when it got violent, um, but he didn't seem to challenge his own election results <laughs> um, most recently. And that is an element here as well. Um, but, and so I think that's that's kind of one of the meta questions here is like whether this would repeat outside of a Trump context, right? Like Trump, we know before the elections, you know, insinuated said a version of um, the only way I could lose an election is if they cheat or if it was rigged. Um, someone can fact check me and precisely what his wording was there, but you know that was a that was a politician who was um, not only willing to challenge the election results, which a lot of politicians do, frankly but did continue doing it for months and weeks with more and more intense um, claims and, more, and ones more and more divorced from the position of credibility from the perspective of journalists or legal experts or what have you, and for members of their own party as we're learning um, from the January 6th commission. So, um, so I feel like, you know, it, the other element here is Christian nationalism in its most extreme form um, presupposes that there is one kind of people that are American or adequately American, um, and that those are Christians of their ilk, however defined. Um, and that is difficult for that to, to and, and particularly when members of that group are willing to exact violence um, to defend that ideal, um, that is destabilizing for democracy. That's not unique to Christian nationalism. There's a lot of different ways where political and religious groups, a variety of stripes um, can, can decide that they don't want anybody else like them and, and commit violence to do that. Um, that's the, the Christian nationalists don't have a monopoly on that, but this is a particularly politically active and particularly fervent group in our society right now who has shown on January 6th, you know, members of their ilk are willing to, um, to commit violence to uh, exact their point of view. And so um, 
I, that's the thing I think a lot of um, reporters, there's a, there's a new trend in journalism where um, not just politics reporters, but what are called democracy reporters, people who cover, um, you know, the, the, the country as, as it should function, not just the, the palace intrigue of politics, um, but everything from voting rights to, you know, how democracies function who are concerned about and not just Christian nationalism, but the myriad of movements that they are parallel to, attached to, connected with, um, in terms of the ability to destabilize democracy. Um, and, you know, I should note, like, again, it is not exclusively Christian nationalists who commit violence. There are a myriad of groups who are committing violence from um, across the political spectrum right now. Um, and, and that has a potential destabilizing force on a republic as well. Um, but in terms of the one that seems to be um, loudest right about now and most energized moving into the November uh, midterms, you know, Christian nationalists seem to be the one that uh, democracy watchers are paying um, some of the closest attention to. And as you said, we, we live in a kind of an age where I think political violence seems to be more of a possibility if it's not has happened. And that's something that seems to be striking or affecting across the political spectrum. Do you see this movement of Christian nationalism? I mean, we, we, we saw a little bit of it on January 6th, but do you think that there will be further acts of violence in the, in the years to come? Well, um, hope not. <laughs> but I mean, as a practical matter, um, you know, one of the interesting things about being religion reporters, you're kind of an everything reporter because religion touches everything. And when it doesn't touch something, that's still an interesting story. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, uh, you know, well, one of the many hats that I have worn while being under the umbrella of religion reporter is that I am in many ways, and several of us are a little bit extremism reporters now. Um, and we've done that throughout for different reasons throughout our careers, had to, you know, religious extremists. Again, Christianity doesn't lock on extremism either. Um, but like, you know, when I'm looking at religiously motivated extremists um, in 2022 in the United States, the group that I am looking at most closely at the moment are Christian nationalists, full stop, because they have, they have you know, discussed violence in some instances and acted violence and um, the targeted harassment of um, LGBTQ people recently, among others, is, is something we know. I mean, Patriot Front is interesting. I mentioned them earlier, that white nationalist group that got arrested in Idaho. They aren't necessarily tied to a faith community. Like, the extremism experts tell me that they're actually in conversation with many, but that's not, like, singular to their identity or a, 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 a constant refrain like it is with groups such as America First, right? Or increasingly, the Proud Boys, where out west you actually have Proud Boys that in the middle of their logo um, is actually just a cross now. Um, and so, uh, so I don't want to draw a cor correlation that the arrest of Patriot Front um, is, you know, evidence that Christian nationalist violence could be exacted. Um, but again, you know, it depends on how you count it, right? Like, if you think that Proud Boys that have crosses on their arms are evidence of Christian nationalist violence after they just heard, a, um, you know, if they, if they had a preacher stand in front of a giant American flag before they went and beat up Antifa, as was true last year, um, then, then that they did that, man. <laughs> that was Christian nationalist violence. And I don't, I don't foresee them um, and other groups not um, stopping, um, you know, their, their calls for violence or their calls for action. And, 
it's possible that law enforcement is cracking down, which would be, uh, you know, the, the arrest of Patriot Front could signal. But um, I am I would be, I am skeptical of the idea that we will emerge from this moment, political moment unscathed um, uh, by violence enacted by um, right wing religiously motivated groups. Um, again, I hope that's the case. I hope that political violence just stops in our country. That'd be great. Um, but in lieu of that, uh, I, I I think there are when I when I talk to extremism experts for a few stories recently, they're very concerned about this. And, um, and they talk about it as a relatively new trend that they're watching. And so um, for me, that says a lot. Mm. Um, if people want to know a little bit more about or read some of your articles, where can they find you? Sure. So the, the main way to find it and find me is on Twitter at Jack M. Jenkins. Um, and I mostly tweet about um, uh, religion and politics, um, sometimes about Star Wars. I apologize. In a, in a bit. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, I also write at religionnews.com. That's the religion news service. Um, you can find me in the staff bio page and find all the things I've written most recently. Our religion news service is a wire. So our, um, our subscribers, you know, range from religious publications such as National Catholic Reporter or Christianity Today to secular outlets such as the Washington Post. So you can also find our, um, our work in, in those areas as well. Um, so yeah, those are the places to find me. Okay. Well, I know this was not a hopeful conversation, but I think it's, it's an enlightening conversation. And I think it is a conversation we all need to have, at least to hopefully, as you say, doesn't get bad, but we at least need to be aware of it. So thank you for taking the time to uh, come on and to talk to us about this important issue. Thank you so much. And I, I should note, um, for those who think that Christian nationalism is an issue or a threat to democracy, there are no shortage of groups that are advocating against it, particularly religious groups. Um, there is an organization literally called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Um, but uh, you know, I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. And I, I thank you for inviting me on. All right. Okay. Well, take care. <laughs> you have a good one. thank Jack for taking the time to uh, chat with me uh, today. And I hope that this was an informative interview for you as well as it was for me. Um, I hope that if you um, like what you're hearing, that you will consider uh, leaving a review. You can leave it out of uh, your podcast platform of your choice. When you do that, it makes it actually a lot easier for all those algorithms to work and make it easier for people to find um, the podcast. So if you have a, a four or five star review, um, please leave it. And um, and actually, I've made it a little bit easy for you. You can um, find it by, there's a link in, in the show notes where you can um, go and it kind of, kind of gives you a choice of where you can leave your review. So um, 
I hope that you do that. That's is helpful. Um, that is it for this episode. And uh, again, thank you. And we will be back soon with another episode about uh, the intersection of religion and modern life. This is Dennis Sanders, your host for Church in Maine. Take care, Godspeed, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.